It is a privilege again uh, to, bro- uh, to um, have our brother Shane uh, with us, and uh, he was asking where Troy was, and how far away is this? You know, uh, Shane comes from across the river, from that other state, and uh, uh, so he has quite a bit of traveling to do. We're just going to add a few more miles to his, uh, to his travels in the future. Brother, come on up and share with us. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you once again as we have another opportunity to open up God's Word. I didn't know where Troy was. I mean, Macedonia? I mean, <laughs> Helen, you know, with uh, they, they went, in the, anyway, apparently it's not that one, so we're in luck. I might be able to visit you again in your new location. So um, what I'd like to explore this morning is the question, why should we believe the Bible. Have you ever asked that question? I mean, if you think about it, there are a lot of holy books out there in the spiritual marketplace. So what makes you so sure that the collection we find with this book titled The Holy Bible, what makes us so sure that this is the right one? You know, in contrast to, say, the Quran or the Book of Mormon, or all the other books that claim to be inspired words. You know, sometimes it's personally inspiring. Uh, Some people are just inspired by beautiful poetry, but it's subjectively inspiring. Well, but then there's the objective kind where it claims to be inspired by a divine being of some kind. Ancient literature was filled with this kind of thing. Tell me, O muse, says uh, Homer in the opening of his, uh, sing to me, O muse, in the opening of uh, the Iliad, which is the story about the face that launched a thousand ships. It was the muse that inspired Homer to get the story right. And so you could find someone in in ancient Greece, like, how do you know that our view of the situation is right? Well, the muse said it, I believe it, that settles it. So how do we know that all those ancient cultures were wrong and that we're the ones that have the right holy book? How do we know that the Bible isn't just the ramblings of um, ancient madmen? If you haven't asked questions of this kind, be assured that your neighbors have. In fact, I had views like this before I converted from atheism. I was convinced. I didn't research it very well, but these were my assumptions about the Bible as I was raised in a kind of secular Jewish faith. I was convinced that eh, this stuff was made up. Eventually, though, I lost faith in my atheism, and I came to be convinced there's something that is, uh, there's something that can't be explained naturalistically about this book. So how about you? How would you answer some of these questions? How deeply have you thought about some of these issues that lie at the foundation of our faith? As I actually examine the situation uh, in our contemporary Christian world, which is vast and diverse, uh, it seems like uh, this is, in, in many cases, an irrelevant question 
for many, many Christians. Because in a lot of people's views, faith doesn't need any kind of proof. In fact, faith and proof are two different things. Faith is seen as a leap in the dark, as a kind of um, spiritual sixth sense, if you will. And it's just that, in fact, there's enough evidence can get you so far, and then you just, the rest is faith. Over this past summer, I recorded close to um, 100 man-on-the-street interviews at a, ver- a variety of um, different Christian gatherings for my podcast. And the, some of these were recorded at conventions, um, sometimes a Christian music concert, other times a megachurch. And when I asked the people that I interviewed, the question I was asking was, what is faith? The overwhelming majority of the Christians I interviewed said something to the effect of, um, it's not something uh, that needs proof. It's something you just know in your heart. You just know it's like a deep conviction that's not part of the five senses. It's something, it's like a feeling inside. I thought about 90% of the people I pulled seemed to think that faith was. The problem, of course, is that this is also the same answer that a lot of cultists give. A lot of people from a wide variety of religions give this answer of faith. Faith is kind of an irrational leap. It's a mystical thing. If a Mormon missionary comes knocking at your door, he's probably going to tell you that uh, the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. Because, and he knows this because he has experienced a burning in his bosom. It's this inner feeling that confirms This is the scripture that we should all believe. You may have heard Christians sometimes say, the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it. But how do you think that same person would respond if a Muslim neighbor said, the Quran says it, I believe it, that settles it. You know, that's actually just a conversation stopper, isn't it? If you aren't persuaded by that conversation stopper, but just it simply is a way of saying, okay, I shouldn't bring up religion anymore to that person, uh, then we shouldn't give that same answer to others. Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul specifically encourages Christian believers to, quote, test all things and to hold on to the good. Test all things, but hold on to the good. We should test all ideas. We should test the ideas that are up here. But we shouldn't be so skeptical that we throw everything out. we we got to remember to hold on to the good. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We have to test, but also keep the good. And the reason he says that we should do this, actually, uh, not him, but another apostle, John, in his epistle, says something similar. He says, test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Peter said the same, a very similar thing in the New Testament lesson. But how do we test the spirits, and how do we distinguish between true and false prophecies? How do we tell whether the Book of Mormon is the right book, or the Bible, or the Quran? This is what I would like us to think about this afternoon. And the text that I would like us to first consider along these lines happens to be from Exodus chapter 3. This is that great scene where Moses first encounters God at the site of the burning bush. 
after he was appointed to announce God's message of liberation to the elders of Israel, the former prince of Egypt began to consider the complete implausibility of his story, particularly in light of the fact that he's right now engaged in a conversation with a bush. They're not going to believe me. That's what he says. They're not going to believe me. And so, literally, he says, what if they will not believe me or listen to me, what, listen to what I say? And God, of course, solves Moses' problem for him. He says, don't worry about this kind of thing. I will give them warm, fuzzy feelings in their belly when you talk. It's very simple. That's not what he says, is it? You know the story. That's why there was giggling. What does he say, though? Instead, God actually promises to empower Moses to perform a variety of signs and wonders. Quote, if they will not believe you or pay attention to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the last sign. So there was actually three. Like, if they don't believe the first sign, then I'll give them another sign. If they don't believe that sign, I'll give them another sign. Don't believe that. I'll keep. He keeps giving signs, all these signs external to the word. Now, when Moses did finally report all that God had revealed to the elders of Israel, we're told that he performed the signs in the sight of the people, just as God had instructed. And the end result was that after seeing all the signs, the people believed. They didn't sort of say, Moses said it, I, 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 that settles it, I believe it. First of all, you know, why should we believe him versus other people who claim to speak for God? But they saw the signs that accompanied his word that confirmed that this was no ordinary speaker of, on religious matters. In other words, from the very earliest period in redemptive history, true biblical faith was never seen as a kind of spiritual sixth sense, this tingly thing inside that I just can't explain, that I just, I just know it's true. That's not what it is. It's not a blind leap in the dark. It was always presented as a trustworthy and reliable conviction grounded in real-world events and external evidence that could be apprehended by the senses. Notice also what happens later at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Speaking to Moses, God says, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. That's really interesting. Soon after this, God descends upon the mountain just as he had promised. And then we read these words. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and very loud trumpet blasts so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off, and they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. So now, if these events really happened as described, then the people of Israel who gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai wouldn't have need reasons for God's existence. They don't need 
you know, a lot of discussions about which, which philosophy, which theology should we consider? Uh, what, what is the preferred approach in religious spirituality? They had actually walked through the parted waters of the Red Sea. They saw with their own eyes the great cloud descend upon the mountain. They heard God's voice audibly. And that utterly terrified them. What's particularly interesting, though, is the fact that according to verse 9 of Exodus 19, the signs and wonders seen at Mount Sinai served not only to prove to them that God existed, but also it had the secondary effect, if you look at that text carefully, of establishing Moses' authority as well. When the people hear, when I speak with you, God told Moses, they will have a sure foundation to believe you forever. Interesting. And how was that belief? What was the, that, that belief in Moses' authority as a spokesperson was grounded in all that they saw and heard at that occasion? The senses. Why did so many generations of Israelites come to believe that God was Moses, that Moses was God's spokesperson? And why did they end up concluding that his five books were divinely inspired? I believe the explanation is found here in Exodus. You see, Moses was directly involved in all these miracles that the Israelites witnessed. When he struck the water of the Nile with a staff, it turned to blood. When he raised his staff over the sea, the waters were divided. The people heard God's voice as he spoke spoke to Moses and witnessed the pillar of cloud and fire. None of these things could be explained naturally, which is why they believed in Moses as the divine spokesperson and as an inspired prophet. This is why they copied his writings with such great care and taught them diligently to their children and their children's children, generation after generation. Now, there are a couple of places in the book of Deuteronomy in which God promises to raise up additional prophets who speak his word and who will shepherd his people. But the question arises, how will the people of Israel be able to distinguish a true prophet, say, in contrast to those people who are just making stuff up or who are lying to you and deceiving you as false prophets? God addresses this issue specifically by giving two criteria for determining authentic prophets. The first happens to appear in Deuteronomy 13. And it says, God says this, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign and a wonder, and the sign and the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, then let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. For the Lord your God is testing to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. The basic thrust of this passage is that even if a person is somehow able to perform what appears to be a miraculous sign, He is still to be rejected as a false prophet if he ends up leading the people to worship false gods. Baal. Uh, All these other deities in ancient Mesopotamian world, Marduk, whoever, even if miracles accompany it, 
Because of what the Israelites had experienced, they trusted Moses. And Moses gave them these instructions. God, through Moses, is instructing the people what to look for as you listen to future prophets. Even if they commit miracles, even if they perform miracles, they're teaching you something other than what's been revealed. Go away. Do not follow them. It has to be consistent with what's already been revealed. It has to be Yahweh worship. In short, a prophet's teaching must be consistent with all that he's revealed. He must lead them to the exclusive worship of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the second criteria that we find in the book of Deuteronomy is from our Old Testament lesson, from Deuteronomy chapter 18. In this chapter, the people of Israel were specifically warned about the real possibility of false prophets and were instructed not to immediately trust those who simply claim to speak for God. Rather, they should reserve judgment until a prophet's words concerning future events ended up coming to pass. The people of Israel were never instructed to pray to God asking for him to confirm the words of the prophet within the recesses of their individual private hearts, which is what the Mormons ask you to do. They were never told to put the words of potential prophets into practice and to see whether that practicing, that practicing these words ends up giving you health, wealth, and prosperity. Which is what people like Joel Osteen and others tell you to do. No. They were actually specifically instructed to look for objective, real-world, external evidence that you can't make up. This person declared the future before it happened. This is the way the people of Israel were instructed to distinguish between true and false prophecy. And with a sign that, that clear, it was unmistakably a divine word. A word that was confirmed as divine only if it promoted the worship of Yahweh. Once again, a close examination of this foundational biblical narrative ends up revealing that from the very beginning, Israel's faith was anything but blind. It had to be looking and searching and evaluating. And since false prophecy was going to be an ongoing problem, they were instructed to look for the supernatural signs that authenticated and established the inspiration and authority of all those who claimed to speak for God. A few decades ago, a creative writer by the name of Neil Donald Walsh, some of you may have heard of him, uh, he claimed that he was, as he was pouring his heart out to God in, the, in a writing form, he's writing a letter to God, surprisingly God took over his pen and began answering him back as he was asking God questions. Why did you allow this in my life? And God said, well, I did it because of this. And so Neil Donald Walsh decided to write a book. I think Conversations with God is the title of it. It became a best-selling book. It's been off into 20 or something books by now. Best-selling New York Times books. But what's interesting is, in this book, Walsh says that God told him this. Leaders, ministers, books, and even the Bible itself are not authoritative sources. Instead, God tells this writer, listen to your feelings, listen to your experience. When any one of these differ from what you've been told by your teachers or read in your books, forget the words. 
Words are the least reliable purveyors of truth. Ironically, of course, Walsh wrote those words down in a book, which then became a bestseller. It's kind of ironic, but nevertheless, it's a popular... But how do we know that Neil Donald Walsh didn't really hear from God? Well, part of the problem is we're con American consumers, and I just choose to believe it. It's my own sort of... I, I like that, you know, it's a cafeteria. Some like chicken, some like the, uh, the meatloaf. I kind of go for the, uh, the taco, and that's the way I approach religion. Some people like the Bible, some like the Book of Mormon, some like Neil Donald Walsh. I like my own inner voice. It's actually a line in Deuteronomy also that says, don't follow your heart. That's going against Disney. <laughs> but think about how, how all this violates the criteria from the book of Deuteronomy. First of all, we're told to forget the words of all other teachers and books, which of course would include the writings of Moses and uh, all that God had revealed in uh, the first few books of the Bible. And secondly, Walsh never did end up providing any external evidence that he was actually inspired. You take it or leave it. Uh, his readers are just encouraged to turn inward and trust their own subjective feelings. There's also a, revealing, a very revealing passage in the Quran, which we find Muhammad having this conversation with God, uh, with Allah, and what he's, he's saying in this one scene is like, how will the people know that I'm really a prophet? It's kind of like that scene at the burning bush with Moses, but in this case, in the Quran, we find this. As Allah, as Muhammad asks Allah, will you give me a sign? Allah responds by saying, the signs belong to Allah. So tell the people, I am only but a, pum a public preacher. Is it not enough, he went on to say, that we have revealed to you the book which is recited to them? The book is enough. There are not going to be any signs. There is just, there's just the holy book. So Muhammad writes a holy book and you just have to take... Now, of course, they had a, a great marketing strategy. It was called the sword. Now, in short, though, there was no... There was nothing outside of the word itself, just to claim that this is God's word, but nothing to confirm the claim. Nothing to confirm the claim at all. So these two criteria, I think, are helpful as we think about how the Bible itself emerges... How do we get our Bible? Uh, Moses lays the foundational, uh, he is the, the sort of foundational spokesperson. He is a leader, shepherd, prophet. He's a kind of a intercessor. He's a prophet, priest, king in many ways, which ultimately establishes, uh, it points to someone else uh, later in redemptive history, the ultimate one who can take us into the promised land, unlike Joshua, unlike, unlike Moses himself, the future Joshua. Yeshua. But these two criteria served to, be, to guide Israel throughout the centuries as she evaluated the messages of all those who rose up within her ranks claiming to speak for God. A true prophet was one who continued to promote the exclusive worship of Yahweh and who accurately described the future before it happened. So now let's step back a moment and examine how these two, two criteria were applied in Israel's history. Let's just think of one prophet, you know, 
As an example, Isaiah. Isaiah lives at a time of great unfaithfulness in the land. In fact, according to chapter 9, verse 15 of Isaiah's prophecy, there were many false prophets in the land during his day. So how was the average Israelite to know which of these men really spoke for God? Why did the Israelites later come to believe that Isaiah was a true prophet whose writings should be collected and added to the canon alongside with Moses while all the others were not? The answer is that Isaiah promoted the exclusive worship of Yahweh, which we find in a number of texts throughout his prophecy. And he declared numerous things well in advance of their actual fulfillment in space and time. Notice, for example, how the God of Israel challenges the false gods of his day in this passage from Isaiah 41. Listen to these words, Isaiah 41. This is God speaking through Isaiah. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what's going to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them and that we may know their outcome. Declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Do good or harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. This is Yahweh mocking the idols that are so popular in his day. And in the very next chapter, in Isaiah chapter 42... God ends up confirming the supernatural character of Isaiah's prophetic word by making unmistakably clear announcements related to the coming messianic servant who, quote, will bring forth justice to the nations. In fact, this is the very beginning of what scholars refer to as the servant songs. And that uh, the, these servant songs declare among other things, that Israel's Messiah will be despised and rejected by his own people, in that his death will provide atonement for sin. This will also bring salvation to the ends of the earth. All this was written some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And because of the amazing correspondence between Isaiah's servant songs and the life of Jesus Christ, at the very least, we should consider this an, a significant external sign worthy of further investigation. At least that may be a good conversation starter as you're talking with your friends outside of, I feel that, I, this is uh, something I just know it's true. This, this is the kind of thing that many people throughout the early church, like, have you ever asked, why did your great-grandparents 20 or 30 generations ago convert from Druidism to Christianity? Something had to convince them. And it was stuff like this. But does this answer, this does not answer the question as to what made it motivated the Israelites to add Isaiah's writings to the Hebrew canon because Jesus hadn't come yet when they added his writings to the canon, right? As it turns out, a close examination of Isaiah's prophecy shows that he predicted many things that came to pass well before they happened, and some of these things were close within his lifetime. In Isaiah 37, Isaiah foresaw the, is the uh, Assyrian invasion, which ended up occurring around 701 B.C. He's writing maybe 740. So in, his, in just a short amount of time, he sees the Assyrians will 
invade the land, and they do. He also, uh, you know, though the northern nation of Israel would fall along with most of the southern cities of Judah, Isaiah reassures King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, would return to his homeland without even entering the city of Jerusalem. And that event was actually corroborated by a few various lines in artifacts left behind by Sennacherib that we still have today. University of Chicago has some of them. And as well as by lines in, by the Greek historian Herodotus. In Isaiah chapter 39, the prophet foretold the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. So in the Assyrian invasion... All the land is decimated, but not Jerusalem. The, the Babylonian invasion is going to be complete decimation, even of Jerusalem itself. It's going to be hauled off into captivity, all its residents, and the temple will be destroyed. And this later occurred around 586 B.C. under King Nebuchadnezzar and was also confirmed by a lot of external sources. In Isaiah 13, the prophet announced that Babylon itself would fall to the Medes, and this took place around 539 B.C., the account of which is also recorded for us in Daniel chapter 5. In Isaiah chapters 44 and 45, the prophet foresaw a time well beyond the Babylonian captivity when the Israelite exiles, those who were taken to Babylon, they will be liberated and allowed to return to their homeland, which took place around 501. 1 BC under Cyrus the Great, the great Persian leader. What's really interesting is that in this section of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah specifically mentions Cyrus by name. Thus says the Lord who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall fulfill all my purpose. Okay, that happened about 501. Isaiah writes this around 740, somewhere between 740 and 700 BC. Those are the days when the clocks went backwards. Uh, so these prophecies are so clear, in fact, that naturalistic historians who refuse to admit even the possibility of miracles and of prophetic prophecy have argued that there must have been another writer who added after the fact, to Isaiah's prophecy, a second Isaiah, if you will. Then others came and said, well, maybe there's three Isaiahs. Today, I talked to an, recently, uh, I talked to a, an Isaiah scholar who said, it's actually become like, it's getting really crazy in the world of Isaiah scholarship. It's almost like there are thousands of Isaiahs. There's like this, this part here, this one passage is, is uh, from... But the good thing is he sees an end to it because it's getting absurd in the scholarly community. And people are returning, to, in some cases, to the simple idea that it's too subjective to look at a text that way. Now, here's the thing. Is it, does it make sense to posit a different Isaiah who wrote some of these things after the fact? The problem with this approach is that it ignores the countless prophecies scattered throughout the book of Isaiah relating to the coming Messiah and the international scope of his future kingdom. In other words, the explanation that others later added material to the prophecy of Isaiah after the fact in order to make it look like predictive prophecy fails to account for the way it foretold many significant events that later came to pass in the life of Christ and in the Christian uh, the rise of the Christian church. Think about this for a minute. The oldest complete copy we have of Isaiah 
dates to about 200 BC. It's part of the collection of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We found almost an entirely complete copy of Isaiah. And it changed the, the dating. Like the oldest copy we had before then was about 900 AD. So we jumped ahead like 1,200 years. We found a copy that's 1,200 years older. Guess what? Looked pretty much the same. Not a whole lot of difference. Some spelling updates and things like that, but nothing, nothing at all that was different. So no one disputes the age and authenticity of this particular scroll of Isaiah. It's 200 years older than the time of Christ. It was written 200 years before Jesus came on the scene. So just for the sake of argument, let's assume that the final version of Isaiah was put together just weeks before this copy that we have, right? It just took shape sometime around there. It was, a lot of it was written after the fact. Take that hypothesis, play with it, and see what happens. Well, would that explain the book? In this case, nothing supernatural would be required to explain Isaiah's predictions concerning Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, or Cyrus, since there's plenty of time for that material to be added by editors and redactors to the book. Lots of time. So that can, that, you could explain that under that hypothesis, the naturalist, that there's certain plausibility there. But the theory does not begin to address the most amazing prophecies of all. Earlier I mentioned some of the parallels between the life of Jesus and the servant songs of Isaiah. Here are some additional, additional detailed examples from the final servant song, which we find in Isaiah's chapter 52 and 53. 52, verse 13 and 14, God's coming messianic servant will be both exalted and despised. It's a strange combination, exalted and despised. Though he has no majesty of his own, this suffering servant will attract the attention of kings around the world. He will be a man of sorrows. He will be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. He will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be cut off from the land of the living. He will be laid in the grave with the wicked. A rich man will be involved in his death and his burial. Suffered, dead, buried. That seems to be fairly clear. But wait, there's more. He will, be, he will bear the iniquities of many and make them to be accounted righteous. And after his suffering and death, he will see light. This is one of the small differences that we find from the, what's called the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scroll version. Your ESV, if you're using the ESV, does not have these words. The light words, he shall see light, is not in your ESV because they're relying more on the Masoretic text. But the Dead Sea Scroll, the oldest copy we have, those words are there. It's also in the Septuagint, the Greek translation. So this is one of these places where a lot of Isaiah scholars say the NIV, for example, did put it back in. So some English translations have it, some don't. But the text says he will, this one who died and was buried sees light and then his days are prolonged. And then he divides spoils in a victory celebration. Many scholars believe that this section of Isaiah's prophecy was the primary text that Paul was alluding to in his famous passage in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's reminding them of the gospel. The most important thing, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Now, in most apologetics contexts, when appeal is made to 1 Corinthians 15, 
people tend to focus on the fact that Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses, that this was something that was not done in a corner. He was seen by eyewitnesses, and that's great. But one of the things that really gave power to the earliest Christian proclamation was the fact, was the fact that the events that were seen by living and reliable eyewitnesses had also been foreseen centuries earlier by people like Isaiah. As you read through the epistles and the sermons, you find uh, scattered throughout the book of Acts, uh, again and again you find that the primary emphasis in all these encounters was on Jesus' fulfillment of these messianic prophecies, and, of the, and particularly of those that related to his death for sin and his resurrection from the dead. So we find these themes so clearly outlined, not merely in the servant songs of Isaiah, but throughout the, his entire prophecy, we must begin to ask whether the naturalistic theory concerning the origin of this book really works at all, since this theory is unable to explain the accuracy of its detailed prophecies related to the rise of Christianity in the first century. Why should it be considered the most reasonable hypothesis to explain some of the earlier examples of fulfilled prophecy relating to Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, and Cyrus? In fact, if you think about it, the naturalistic hypothesis is actually unable to account for why Isaiah's writings were added to the Hebrew canon in the first place. I mean, if all these later events were added in order to make it look like it was fulfilled prophecy, this would mean that he never did fulfill any of the criteria laid out for us in Deuteronomy. Why was Isaiah considered to be a true prophet? Why should we put his writings on par with Moses? That's a high bar. Why is he the one true prophet in the midst of an entire generation of false prophets? Something has to explain that. Well, because our oldest copy of Isaiah dates to around 200 years before Christ, all the countless parallels to the events in the life of Jesus could not have been written after the fact. That's not a faith leap. That is, there's no other explanation. We have this copy, which has these prophecies, which looks like a copy, which looks like a, a chapter from Mark's gospel. Furthermore, Isaiah 49, verse 6, reveals that Israel's Messiah would be a light to the nations, and that his salvation would reach to the ends of the earth. We, this is not convincing to us because we're, all, we're used to it. You and I here are at the ends of the earth. We believe this story. And so we're used to this. But it's a miracle. Think about the first century believers who couldn't even fathom the other side of the planet. And that people uh, some 2,000 years later would be worshiping the risen Messiah, but, not, but would not, there would not be a Roman emperor. How would anyone involved in the writing and redacting of a passage like Isaiah be able to know in advance how the world would respond to Israel's Messiah? So, look, the copy that we have dates 200 years before Christ, and it's saying that this is going to become an international faith. Think about how small Israel is, 200 BC. It's a very tiny place. And yet, it's going to, the ends of the earth will come streaming to Zion. This is not just a small prophecy here and there. It's all over Isaiah. It's all over the entire Old Testament. Think about the very first promise in Abraham, 
Uh, the story of Abraham. In your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The fact is, this mysterious text that we call the prophecy of Isaiah cannot be explained naturalistically by any theory that is naturalistic. And this confirms the claim that Isaiah truly was a prophet whose words really were divinely inspired. You look just at that 200 BC copy and you compare it to what happened later, you say, hmm, well, I think this is a divine text. It looks pretty clear to me. As I mentioned, this connection between the life of Jesus and the Old Testament prophecy ended up being the primary focus of early Christian proclamation. For example, if you just read through the earliest Christian sermons recorded in the book of Acts, again and again, you find references to eyewitness testimony related to the life of Jesus. We saw this with our eyes, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have heard with our ears, which we have, our hands have touched. This is what we proclaim to you. This is not seen in a vision. This is not something personal inside my heart. I just know it's true deep, deep, deep down in my heart. This is something real, tangible, we held, tactile. This has been confirmed by more than two or three witnesses. Remember the category, another category from the book of Deuteronomy, how do you establish something in a court of law? And yet, it's much more than that. They weren't only saying this has been seen by more than two or three witnesses, but all that these witnesses saw ended up fulfilling that which had been written about Jesus centuries in advance. Now, we could also think about the way that Paul appeals to and commends the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. Think about that scene, Acts chapter, chapter 17, verse 11. They're examining the scriptures to see whether or not the things he was teaching about Jesus were actually there in the ancient scrolls. And Paul doesn't, doesn't ever simply assert his status as an apostle, saying, in fact, you can trust what I say because I am God's chosen servant in a kind of a Joseph Smith way. He doesn't sort of rely on um, that. He actually commends the believers for checking to see whether the things he taught were really there in the scriptures. And that actually is in a certain sense fulfilling both criteria from Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. Because this is the consistent message from all the generations. The consistent teaching of Yahweh is that he will reveal this one true seed in whom all the earth will be blessed, and that the, this will be a light to the Gentiles. It's just that message grows and grows and grows. It's consistent all the way through. And it's also... The things were recorded in advance, and we, when we beheld Jesus, we saw all these things fulfilled. Now, recall, too, the words from our New Testament lesson from Peter's second epistle. Peter says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Notice the stress on the eyewitness, the senses. We saw this with our own eyes. We heard the voice on the mountain. And as a result of this, he went on to say that, quote, therefore, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That's the thing that a lot of people miss today. These things have been confirmed. They've been confirmed in the eyewitness uh, proclamation 
of the apostles. They saw these things with their own eyes and confirmed what the prophets had stated so many centuries before. This is another one of these words you find Peter using in the opening of Acts. Uh, Jesus Christ is a man attested to you by signs and miracles, as you yourselves know. He's appealing to public knowledge. Jesus was widely recognized as a miracle worker. This is not in dispute. And he also uses that word attested. Later in Acts, that word is translated proven. He is proven. He has been proven to be a miracle worker and a worker of signs. Peter says elsewhere that later false prophets will continue to be an ongoing threat in the New Testament period. And so how are we to tell which is right in the New Testament period? Well, that which he had seen with his own eyes had been foreseen by the prophets of old, and this is what he is speaking of as having been confirmed. The, that which was foretold has been demonstrated and confirmed, and there is, this is the, the, as the opening of the book of Hebrews, the, in many ways God has spoken to us by various prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his son. And as Jesus says, you believe Moses, but Moses wrote of me. And he shows them, he shows the, uh, the, his followers all that was written concerning him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. What other, what other purported holy books in the marketplace of ideas are like this? Has there been another holy book that's been authenticated in this way? Mary Baker Eddy. Look, look in the pages where she, is, she has prophesied something that came to pass. Anyone, does any of the, your, your astrologers, did any of them predict COVID? Think about the clarity and the specificity, specificity of the things recorded in the Old Testament and then compare the prognosticators of today and the spiritual advisors. No one talked about this coming threat of COVID. Well, this afternoon, we spent most of our time looking at a variety of clear examples from the prophet Isaiah. But if you step back and look at the entire tapestry of Scripture, you quickly discover that Jesus was indeed correct when he said that all the Scriptures testify to him. For example, as I mentioned, there in Genesis, Abraham is told that all the nations will be blessed in one seed. In Psalm 22, David speaks of a forsaken man whose hands and feet are pierced, whose garments are divided by those who cast lots. And yet, how does that dark psalm end? Skip to the end of, Isaiah, of, of Psalm 22 sometime. At the end, you're told, all the earth shall remember the Lord and turn to him, and all the families and nations shall worship before him, just like the Abrahamic promise declared it would happen. In Jeremiah 16, 19, we read that the nations shall come from the ends of the earth and learn of Yahweh's power and might. And in Micah 5, 2, we read this. But you, O Bethlehem, though you are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming is from of old, from of ancient times. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This passage was extremely 
influential in my own conversion from Jewish thinking. You'd see, I'd seen the Christmas specials. <laughs> I knew the significance of Bethlehem, but I was thinking, in my books? It, wait, I'm looking at the Jewish Publication Society book, and it's saying that there's going to be a Messiah born in Bethlehem? Well, that's what's caused me to start digging into this. Beloved, the words have been confirmed. Jesus is the one born from Bethlehem. He is the good shepherd who this very, to this very day is being worshipped all around the world. He is the Prince of Peace. Before I conclude this, this afternoon, I would like to read you a couple of paragraphs from a 3rd and 4th century bishop by the name of Eusebius. Eusebius of Caesarea. Some of you may be familiar with his work on the early history of the, of the church. Uh, but Eusebius also wrote an important book called The Proof of the Gospel. The Proof of the Gospel. Three or four hundred. This is an early church, and this is a kind of the way you would, you know, he, he decided to write a book in that period, which is different from the way a lot of people think about faith. The, the, again, like the people I, I interviewed recently, proof and faith were two different things. You have proof, and you only get so far, and then you got to make that faith leap. Faith is the absence, the opposite of proof in the understanding, and that actually is a misunderstanding. Anyway, Eusebius says this in his work. If so many things were proclaimed by the Hebrew divines, the prophets of old, and if their fulfillment is so clear to us all today, who would not marvel at their inspiration? Who will not agree that their teaching and belief must be, must be sure and true since their proof is to be found not in artificial arguments or clever words, but in simple and straightforward teaching, whose genuine and sincere character is attested by virtue and knowledge of God, and whose virtue and knowledge of God is evident in these inspired, by these inspired men. Men who were enabled not by human but divine inspiration to see from a myriad of ages back what was to happen a long years after. Make sure they claim our confidence for their beliefs. Because of the extraordinary foreknowledge shown in the prophetic writers and of the actual events that occurred in agreement with their prophecies, all men, he says, should be convinced of the inspired and certain nature of the truth we hold. Isn't that great? This, he says, should silence the tongues of the false accusers who slander us by saying that we are unable to present a clear demonstration of the truth we hold and think yet enough to retain those who come to us by faith alone and they say that we only teach our followers like irrational animals to shut their eyes and to staunchly obey whatever we say without examining it at all and call them therefore the faithful because their faith is different from reason. But the Christian faith, he says, is not the result of emotional and unexamined impulse but is in accord with judgment and sober reasoning. You know, it's interesting. Here, in his book, as he's talking about the proof of the gospel, he's talking about the caricature from the pagans who dismissed his views as, you know, they're just, they're just submissive people. They, they're blind. They don't investigate things. That's the caricature. But when I in, interviewed most modern Christians, they've become a living caricature. Most modern Christians today don't know what they believe or why they believe it. They're biblically illiterate, and they don't know the, the foundation. They aren't solidly sure about the foundation of their faith. Though this particular text was written some 1,700 years ago, this book by Eusebius 
contains many ideas that we desperately need to recover in our own day. One thing that I should mention in passing, just to avoid a little confusion, is uh, Eusebius's reference to that word, or the phrase, faith alone. Here we have to distinguish between the doctrine, justification by faith alone, and the idea of faith in faith. There are two different things. We are justified before God, to get technical with uh, theology, this is soteriology. This is the doctrine of salvation. We are justified by the empty hand. We receive Christ's righteousness, his gift, all by grace, simply by faith. But that is different from saying that faith is blind and that there is no object for faith. When Eusebius disparaged the idea of faith alone, he wasn't thinking about the way we're saved at all, but was instead criticizing the idea of faith as a subjective way of knowing without any references, any reference to anything outside us at all. He's rejecting the idea of faith as a subjective leaf or faith leap or faith in faith. As Christians, we believe that Jesus is the object of our faith. And as you listen to the earliest Christian proclamation, you read it through the book of Acts or in some of the writings of the early church, you find the Christians there are arguing that what they're saying is not only true and reasonable, that's language from Paul to Festus, but that it had been confirmed, attested, and proven. These were events that were not done in a corner. These things had been demonstrated. Why should we believe the Bible? Because the word of the Lord had been announced millennia before it happened. And that was fulfilled in real space and real time in the events of the real world. In many times and in many ways, the God of Israel promised to one day send a Messiah who would bring salvation, not just to his own people, but to the entire world. That includes us today. And this occurred in the fullness of time in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That which was seen and reported by trustworthy and reliable eyewitnesses had also been foreseen and written down many centuries ago by Moses and by all the later prophets. Therefore, the Bible doesn't merely just claim to be inspired. It does do that. But it also gives many convincing proofs that this is indeed the case. There are many people in our world today who claim to know what lies beyond the grave. Some say this world is all there is and that nothing will happen when we die. Others say, we're going to be reincarnated. And, and you, know, we'll, you know, you might be a butterfly. It'll be great. According to the Bible, however, it's appointed for a man to die once. And after that, we must face the judgment of an infinitely holy God. And we will be terrified like the Israelites at Mount Sinai unless we are covered and clothed in Christ's spotless robe. So how do we know which of these options is true? How do we know which of these will come to pass? Do we just pick, pick the option we like the best at the, market, at the smorgasbord of ideas? Do we just pick and prefer one that matches the, our own inner intuition? If you think about it, all these claims end up being prophecies of the future. They're predictions of what's going to happen. Your future. Therefore, ask yourself which of these options has an established track record of declaring the future before it happens. Scripture alone does this, which is why you can trust your eternity to the gospel it proclaims.
Let's pray. Holy Father, we are so grateful that you chose to reveal yourself so clearly in the days of Moses and in so many ways throughout Israel's long history. You spoke through your holy prophets and confirmed their words with numerous signs and convincing proofs. But in the fullness of time, you spoke to us by your Son, who fulfilled all that was written of him from the very beginning, that he would be a light to the nations and that he would cause salvation to reach to the ends of the earth, to us here this afternoon. And so we ask, Father, that you would grant us your spirit that we may trust and follow our Savior now and always to the end that we may offer true and acceptable worship with hearts sprinkled clean until that time when you call us into your everlasting kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.